This episode is brought to you by mParticle, the API for every marketing and analytics platform. With mParticle, you don't need lots of SDKs bloating your app. It's purpose-built to help brands solve modern data challenges, and mParticle's customer list is a who's who of brands such as Airbnb, Spotify, Hulu, Postmates, and Venmo. Visit mparticle.com slash deco to learn about how mParticle can help your business simplify its app and accelerate growth. This podcast is also sponsored by GoCD, an on-premise, open-source, continuous delivery server by ThoughtWorks. GoCD gives you complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the inventor of the 400-hour work week, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. And while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Tim Ferriss, an entrepreneur and writer best known for books like The 4-Hour Workweek and The 4-Hour Chef. He has a new book out where he tackles tech a little bit, where he calls Tools of the Titans, the tactics, routines, and habits of billionaires, icons, and world-class performers. He's also an angel investor and the host of a very popular podcast I'm going to be on called The Tim Ferriss Show. But for the next 45 minutes or an hour or so, he's stuck on the other side of the table since this is my show. Tim, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you for having me. So you are like automaton. You, you just produce like crazy. <laughs> Professional dilettante. Yeah. Now, every, everybody knows who you are, but why don't you explain who you are? I think of myself as a teacher. Mm-hmm. I always thought I was going to be a ninth grade teacher. Really? Yeah, uh-huh. because I was steered in a better direction down a good path as opposed to a bad path around that age. Mm -hmm. I always thought I was going to go back and and teach in that critical developmental window. But now it turns out that the books and the podcasts and so on are a vehicle for me doing that. I don't think I'm the best writer, but I do think a lot about how to find simplicity on the other side of complexity. I see. So you, where are you from? I don't even know where you're from. Long Island. Long, oh, Long Island. Long Island. Born and raised. I was in Roslyn. Oh yeah. So I was born and raised out in the Hamptons, believe it or not. Wow. As a townie. That must be something. And it was weird. It's a super odd place to grow irritating. up. irritating. There is a huge amount of tension between yeah. the locals and the city people, as mm-hmm. they're called. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that are trying to play country. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, you get exposed to the best and the worst of humanity yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, probably. I, I grew up busing and mm-hmm. waiting tables. And mm-hmm. you, f- you have the self-made folks who were generally very, very cool. Uh, Billy Joel used to tip $20 for a cup of coffee. And I remember that blew my mind. Ah. I was a fortune at the time. Oh, wow. And he, and, he was, and, he, and, and he was happy to talk, answer questions, but then mm-hmm. you had a lot of people who were there to be seen, to see or be seen, and, yeah. and they were generally yeah. terrible. So you, but why did, why a teacher? What, what was the... Well, I growing up on Long Island, uh, a lot of people have idle hands, and many of my closest friends have died of ODs, uh, ended up alcoholics, mm-hmm. and I had a number of influences in the form of teachers and coaches around that, I would say 14 to 16 range who gave me a whip in the ass and helped to show me what was possible outside of Long Island Mm -hmm. and to push me to explore that. And uh, I I really feel like there are many decisions that kids make in ninth or 10th grade that are hard to reverse by the time they get to the senior year. Oh my God, I have a ninth grader, tell me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. So I always... He's going to be a pot dealer. That's his (laughs) Well, these days... Good, it's good. That that could be an incredible (laughs) entrepreneurial journey. (laughs) 
Uh, so, that, so that was the primary drive. And uh, it just turns out that the same way I would have approached teaching can be done in any medium. Right, just, which I, you I, do, which you yeah. do. I'm, I'm super interested in people's journeys of getting places and how they got to where they are because you, you really do – even you're an author of a lot of issues, but you have been very closely associated with tech and tech people, um, which you've been attracted to, and they've been attracted to you, obviously, and use a lot of your tenants. So you didn't become a teacher. You weren't a social studies teacher for a not. bunch of kids. Did Where not. did you go from there? I went from uh, Long Island at the recommendation of some of my teachers, one math teacher in particular, transferred to a boarding school in mm-hmm. New Hampshire mm-hmm. called St. Paul's, which is a nice. fantastic school. Fancy. And uh, really, really... Uh, had a tough time initially there because it's classes six mm-hmm. days a week, yeah. mandatory sports, classes end around mm-hmm. 6, 6.30 p.m., and went to Princeton for college. Always had this love affair with Stanford, thought I wanted to go to yeah. Stanford. Still Why think so? I, Why still so? think I would have been happier. I think it was Palm Drive, honestly. It's just really? the iconic just driving down view. This thing. Princeton's of, pretty nice. I grew up in Princeton. Princeton's nice. I like Princeton. It's an odd town. It's not, oh, yeah. it's not really a college town. Uh, no, they hate the college. Yeah, so you they're, walk. They're better than the college. Yeah, you walk through. Yeah. You walk down Witherspoon or one of these streets, and as a college student, if you don't have money, which I didn't, <laughs> you have Swarovski diamonds. Right. Then no. you have. No, there's really rich people. Three hundred dollars shoes. Yeah. yeah. So there's nothing no. to do. There's no. The townies are richer than the college. Yeah. Kids. Exactly. You know, and they don't have it. I don't want any of it. I found Princeton very, very stodgy. Yeah. Uh, for me. Yeah. Yeah, um, a lot of stick up the butts there. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you know Princeton, you're probably familiar with these, the weird eating club culture. Oh, yeah, hate it. <sighs> there's one spot. So I, I had a very tough time at Princeton, and uh, there was a, there's one eating club called Terrace, mm-hmm. which is sort of where the odds and ends fit in. Yep. And you I, know what? I hate to say this, but my boyfriend was head of it. <laughs> when I had a boyfriend, he you know, was head of it. You know, Terrace kept me alive and kept yeah. me sane. They were the drinking ones, right? They used to drink in the basement. Well, they all drink. And I guess they have changed over time. These days, Terrace has, well, when I was there too, rainbow flag flying out front. Yeah, no, they're very different compared to the the best food, which was important to me. Mm -hmm. And it was just an eclectic gang of weirdos, which appealed to me. That's exactly what their point was. And then the other ones, I forget the one, the awful one. They used to play croquet on the lawn. Oh, God, Ivy probably? Yeah. Cottage maybe? I literally was like, (laughs) what is wrong with you people? It was so, because I used to date this guy, so we used to always go, what is wrong with you? Oh, it's wild. And yeah. some of these eating clubs have larger endowments per se oh, absolutely. than yeah, name Princeton's brand universities. Yeah, certainly a place. But, so yeah. you didn't go to Stanford. So you were attracted here. What, why didn't you apply here? I did. I got into Princeton early, and it was an exploding offer. It right. was early action. Right. And so I you said, oh, you know what? Yeah. <laughs> if I really want to get out of here. What uh, attracted you to California? What was the just the we- look and feel of it? Weather more than anything else. It was weather and also the excitement. I wasn't excited about investment banking or mm-hmm. management consulting. It, right. it, it depressed me. And I had, this was 99, 2000. Mm-hmm. I had a job offer from a company out here in Silicon Valley. Well, let me back up. After 32 emails to the CEO, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I Good wrote, for you. <laughs> uh, he said, I can meet you for 15 minutes to talk about X, Y, and Z. It wasn't a job offer at the time. And I met mm-hmm. with him. I came out here on a standby ticket. I lived in a kickboxing gym because I couldn't afford a hotel. Mm-hmm. I stayed on the nice. top floor of a kickboxing well gym. And a really tough part, Clementina, which was really nasty at the time. And he said, you're, you're, you're not going to stop bothering me till I give you a job. Is that roughly mm-hmm. the idea? And I yeah. said, yeah, that's it. So, and it was the sun, though. It was the sun and the excitement of being in something that was changing quickly. What was the company? It was True Sand Networks, which is redundant because storage area networks, mm-hmm. fiber channel and Why that? Uh, Ethernet. God, there was so much going on then. Well, why that? Google alone. Just I can tell you. Were founded I, I can tell you because I had no network, knew no one. And one of my professors... 
in college, a guy named Ed Shaw, really fascinating character who had been a congressman, competitive figure skater, taught at Harvard Business School, had taken a few companies public. He had invested in TrueSan, and the ah. CEO came and spoke to the oh, class. So you were inspired by him. Which is inspired by him, and also he was a very young guy at the time, 23, 24, which blew my mind. Mm -hmm. He was the youngest guest speaker by far. And I did my final project in the class on his company. It's so funny what influences people. Yeah. You're just analog influences when oh, you yeah. see someone you saw. So you, you got out here, you got this job? I did, I did. He said, oh, well, you, if, if you're not going to stop pestering me until I give you a job, then you're in technical sales. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Ah, Here's your desk in the fire calling, exit. Right? Smiling and dialing, trying mm -hmm. to sell mm -hmm. huge data, well, huge at the time, laughably small now, but huge mm -hmm. data storage systems to the U.S. Geological Survey uh, or to American Airlines. This was over the summer or, or a real job? This is a real job. This wow. is a real job. What did you think of your life then? Here you are in Pal Palo Alto, right? Or I was living in Mountain View. Mm -hmm. I was in a tiny, tiny apartment. The rent was, I can't say as bad as, as it is now because I don't know, but it was really expensive. And I had this tiny spot across from a jack-in-the-box on Shoreline <laughs> Amphitheater. Oh, depressed him. <laughs> I, I was uh, I was so happy to be here though, mm -hmm. and I worked in San Jose. So I commuted from from Mountain View to San Jose in my mom's hand me down uh, beat up minivan mm -hmm. that I drove for what ages. Your, and ages. What were you thinking of your prospects then? So you want you wanted to be in tech. You wanted to be a yeah. I, I wanted but you didn't to, have computer background, right? No, yeah. I did not. Right. I did not. I was a, I was a, I was a psych major focusing on neuroscience originally at Princeton, and then I couldn't do some of the testing required of me, animal testing. I think I could now, but at the time, the mm -hmm. lab I wanted to work in required putting in your dues in that way, and I just couldn't do it. So I moved to East Asian Studies. So absolutely nothing to nothing. do with tech. Nothing. Nothing. So here you are doing this yeah. sad little commute to San Jose. Oh, yeah, yeah. Stuck <laughs> on 101. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was excited by my prospects. It mm -hmm. was a very optimistic time. Yeah. Every, yeah. Everything was possible. Yeah, until? Nothing was closed off until the company imploded like right. everything else. Right, that year. And I remember I was, I, was, I was considered outside sales. Mm -hmm. So we'd have the inside sales group that would close the meetings, and then I would be sent out to close the deal mm -hmm. with my engineers. I had a systems engineer that I worked with very closely. And I remember the week when the inside sales team was fired. Mm. And I said, oh boy, mm -hmm. that's the, if we look at the writing on the wall here, I right. think my tenure is coming to an end. Right. And uh, if, fortunately, a few months before that, I realized that the company was, in effect, selling vaporware. Right. I mean, it wasn't quite vaporware, but they were over-promising. And I was very close to the engineers. My best friends in the company were the engineers. I hung out with them a lot. And they said, there's no way we can deliver X, Y, and Z right, that we're to promising. these clients. Right. It's, it's, it's not technically possible for right. us to do it in this timeline. I just want to notice you have a Wolverine shirt. I know. <laughs> I was obsessed with Wolverine as a kid. These oh. are all my kids' t-shirts. Oh, they my God. They're too uh, big. <laughs> and uh, I started my own company during lunch hours while I was still t at True So what were you thinking with your new company? So you had entrepreneurial tenants. I did. I did. Yeah. And I'd started a few ill-fated, uh, some not so ill-fated, but I, I had these various attempts at entrepreneurship throughout mm -hmm. college. And even uh, what, late high what, school. What, a donut factory? What? No, I know. The first was a, uh, let's see here. Well, the first that had any modicum of success was teaching students at Princeton how to read faster. Oh, there was uh, a lot of that at Princeton, a lot of test taking. And stuff a lot like. of test taking. And mm -hmm. I, I, I created a seminar, mm -hmm. in effect, that taught students how to read faster. So while you're already retaining. trying to do self-improvement. I was. And this, mm -hmm. this came from, so I have... 
what's called dysgraphia, mm -hmm. which much like dyslexia mm -hmm. is instead of an input, it's an output problem. So I write letters upside down and backwards oh, and things like you're that. Kidding. It's just a handful of letters that, mm -hmm. that that happens with. But reading quickly was always a challenge for me. So I, I solved that problem for myself and then created this class. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I remember I was making $6 an hour in guest library. It was up in this the very top of the East Asian Studies building, and it was like a sweat lodge. It mm -hmm. was miserable. And I did this seminar, put up all these flyers, super analog, and uh, couldn't afford to rent a space, so I used a, let's see, it was the child care room in a church yeah. off hours. <laughs> yeah. There were toys on the floor and so yeah. on. Set up chairs, and I charged the outrageous sum of $50 for for three hours oh. and there was a full refund policy, blah, blah, blah. And I want to say at the end of the day, it was something like 12 or 20 people showed up and right. I've never felt richer. Wow. After so you taught them to read fast. You had rich people to read I, fast. I, I, well, well, they weren't all rich people, no, but, but I had, I remember having these tens and twenties and fives and, ch and checks in my hands mm -hmm. and I wanted to ride as quickly as possible to PNC bank at mm -hmm. the time to deposit mm -hmm. this just Scrooge McDuck level of riches money, it was it, it was just incredible. so you started a bunch of companies so you had an inclination yeah i'd started uh independent gigs uh but not companies i was i was always a solopreneur uh, and then the the company that i started when i was at this data storage company was based on scratching my own itch i, I looked at I asked myself, where am I price insensitive? And I looked at my own credit card statements mm -hmm. to identify where I was spending disproportionately mm -hmm. a lot of my my income, which was you know 40K pre-tax. And uh, it was sports nutrition. And I happened huh. to know a lot about sports nutrition and had just enough uh, on the chemistry side to be dangerous. Had made a lot of concoctions for myself at mm -hmm. Princeton. Mm -hmm. um, that's a bit of a long story, but uh, related to smart drugs and FDA personal importation policies and all that. And... Uh, that's what I started to explore, and wow. I started to so make still self improvement. Still self improvement, and the the ability that I had developed, or just the tolerance for cold calling that I developed, was very helpful during those lunch hours because mm -hmm. I would try to get a hold of manufacturers and regulatory consultants and a contract manufacturers and all all of these types of folks. And so you wanted to make supplements, or yeah, the, yeah essentially, exactly. right yeah, no, there's one one skew that was for effectively. Uh, supporting very specific neurotransmitters, and it uh, that company ended up doing pretty well. And I sold right. I sold that in two thousand nine, but it was it was a long haul. And in between was the four hour work week and so on. So where do you come up with that? Like that's the like four hour work week? yeah. I mean, this was I mean, you because you've got a cult following among especially tech people. It's fascinating. Yeah, the the four hour work week was an accident. So we could get into it, but I almost killed myself at Princeton, mm -hmm. and it was largely related to a huge mess with my thesis advisor and my thesis. And I'd promised myself after graduating, I would never write anything longer than an email ever uh -huh. again. So you can huh. see how well that worked out. Right. But around, I want to say 2003 or four. So you're Ed, working on the supplement thing. Right. And mm -hmm. it's, it's going well. Ed Shell, my professor invited me to come back and give a guest lecture in high tech entrepreneurship, which was his class in right. technically in electrical, electrical engineering at Princeton. So I started doing that twice a year, and I would put together all my notes, and he invited me back because I was bootstrapped, and most of the other entrepreneurs who came in were venture-backed. Right. He wanted uh, Someone a, else. a change. Right. And you had never thought of joining a venture thing or, or joining like a Google, because there was plenty around then. I didn't think I would get a job at a place like Google 
uh, and I didn't feel like I was qualified for venture capital. Well, I was more I was more interested in being in the arena mm-hmm. than right. betting on the players. Right, right. At the time, things have changed. But uh, the the notes from that class over many years, especially the 2004-2005 period where I had a complete nervous breakdown and ended up leaving the country for 18 months, uh, those notes ended up forming the basis for the four-hour work week. And this very uh, prickish... <laughs> Princeton student in the class at one point in the comments said, I don't understand. I, I always sent feedback for him, so I wanted yeah. to get better. And he said, I don't understand why you're teaching a class of 50 students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? And ah, I think, and it was just wow. pure snark, but it stuck in my head. Right. And I had this huge stack of notes and ultimately put together. So you had been giving tips and these things at Princeton. Yeah. And, this I, idea. and I had shifted from focusing on how do you bootstrap a company and grow it and scale it and do all these things to how do you start with the end in mind, i.e. the day-to-day lifestyle that you want to have right. and work backwards in designing a career? And a why four hours? Because you, you've just been overwhelmed by work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I had, at the time, when we were looking at titles for the book, so the, the first title, which uh, the publisher did not like, mm-hmm. so the, the, the four-hour work week was turned down by 26 publishers mm-hmm, and then bought by Crown mm-hmm. for a song, which I don't, they deserve to pay as little as possible. That's their job. It's all worked out. But (laughs) the original title was Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit, which was the name of the class. It was this tongue-in-cheek reference to the supplements. (laughs) And I remember the conversation with Crown. Which isn't the same thing as the four-hour world. No, it's not the same. And they said, uh, I think it was Walmart. They said, Walmart does not like this title. Yep. I said, okay, so we need a new title. And... They had their ideas. I had my ideas, most of which were horrible. And I decided to take a handful that I could tolerate and test them on Google AdWords. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe the, well, let's see. Initially, I had I'd, I'd floated the idea of the two-hour work week right. because that's how much I was spending managing my company at the time. And they said, no, it's completely unrealistic. And I said, four-hour work week? And they're yeah. like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's easier <laughs> to swallow. And then I tested the titles and subtitles on Google AdWords bidding on terms like uh, retirement, 401k, career planning, mm-hmm. et cetera. And Google at the time, I'm sure they still do this, would automatically mix and match the headline and the ad text. Mm-hmm. And so after, say, a week for $150, $200, I knew exactly the best right, combination that, that had, for click-through. But the key was the four-hour work week. The key was... The four hour work week, I think, which has been a blessing and a curse ever since. Yeah. So tell me about that. We're going to get to your next book. And, what, and then you followed mm-hmm. it up with a bunch four, of. Four hour body, four hour chef. Right. Exactly. Are we done with the four hours? I've retired the jersey. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I, I, think, um, I think we're done. But the concept is efficiency. The concept is definitely not idleness. The concept is first and foremost effectiveness. So how do you do the right things and say five to 10x your hourly output by better selecting using 80-20 analysis and things like that, your priorities. And then secondly, efficiency. How do you do those things well? How do you do them right. quickly? And you attracted a, a tech audience with that book. I did. I did. That was. Why do you think that is? They're always trying to self-actualize. and They're change. always trying to self-actualize. And I think particularly in tech, there is the perception and I think the reality that what separates first place and second place is often... Uh, very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if, yeah. if 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 you are able to eke out a 2 5% greater growth rate over X period of time or X interval compared to a competitor, that could make the difference between you getting the, say, tier one venture firm to back you right. or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you had things that preceded 
certainly four hour work week you had getting things done. You had yeah, there was lots of them. Oh There's yeah, forty three folders. Mm-hmm. So so the the cult of optimization is nothing new. I think that what was um, even scheduling programs like if people oh, for remember sure. what was Franklin whatever uh, Franklin Covey yeah something like oh, that yeah, like yeah. how the to day schedule planners, day all planners of that, all, all of that. that so I mean mm-hmm. we we can go all the way back you to aiming at that or just I wasn't aiming at a tech audience per se, but what I did do, and this I suppose is a common thread through a lot of mm-hmm. what I've done, is sold the book, write the book, and I remember sitting down December 26, 2006, mm-hmm. right, day after Christmas, and my book's coming out in three months. The publisher wants to handle, uh, I mean, we can talk about publishers another time, Let's but not. publisher <laughs> publisher says, all right, well, we're gonna handle all these things we know how to do. Right. Okay, great. And the only thing I, I'd interviewed about uh, for writing the book, probably six to 12 best writing authors, people who had won mm-hmm. Booker Prizes, uh, people who had been shortlisted for Pulitzers and so on, sought them out and interviewed them about writing of books. Then I interviewed a bunch of best-selling authors, New York Times best-selling authors, and I asked them where they would spend more time, where they would spend less time on their next, their next launch. And they said, well, we think TV is becoming less important, but there's this thing called blogs. Mm-hmm. And blogs had a had a really unexpected impact on book sales and we think they're getting more important. Mm. And so I said, okay, I need to figure out what blogs are. And I sat down and being a little facetious, but not by much and started looking for conferences where I could learn more about blogging and bloggers. And I ended up spending almost all of my launch money flying to conferences and drinking alcohol uh-huh. <laughs> with people at at, at, and learning at, how to at do CES them. and all right. these places, I never even went into CES. I mm-hmm. ended up going to nobody does. Yeah, I, okay. I ended up going to the the. This is uh, this is kind of a fun one. I'll, I'll keep it short, but I ended up going to the Seagate sponsored Blog House Lounge, H A U S, where I've been there. where people could charge their laptops and get free booze and so on. And I wandered in, and uh, there's this really nice woman who was handling check in did that. I was, I was pretty nervous. I didn't know anybody. I was uh, certainly insecure about my lack of right. technical background. And everyone was glomming onto uh, Robert Scoble. Oh, he was, God. And, no, but they were like, everybody, everybody wants to talk to Robert. And I, I ended up chatting with this woman who was handling check-in, Miriam. And uh, only maybe an hour later did I realize that she was Robert's wife. Oh, and she said, oh, if you want to talk to Robert, like you can talk to Robert. And mm-hmm. I ended up just becoming, uh, asking a lot of questions. That's what I did. I I asked a lot of questions of people at uh, this CES sponsored lounge, a few other places. And then South by Southwest was really the tipping point. And you started doing the blogs. When I, when I did, I started my own blog, which was terrible, terrible, terrible in the beginning and for quite a while. And then I was given a chance by Hugh Forrest to, fill a spot that had fallen out or somebody had dropped out last minute, which was in the, it was in a, effectively a snack lounge yeah, yeah. at South by Southwest. And uh, I was so nervous. I remember rehearsing the talk to my friend's chihuahuas. He lived in Austin and uh, I had the garage so I wouldn't bother him and his wife. And I would, I would gauge how successful my speech was by how long the chihuahuas would sit at attention. <laughs> And, uh, but I gave this talk and because of these bloggers, um, most of whom I didn't know who attended this, the message got out and that was really the tipping point. It's also why I go back to South by every, right. every year since. It's also 
you're coming up with a solution for them. They're always seeking that edge, which is really interesting. We're going to talk about that and more and how we got to this book, because you now have done a book about tips of how they do it. Because obviously, I don't know if you know, I call Robert Scoble Scooby-Don't. Um, <laughs> but he definitely has a thing. He's got a thing going on. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I don't he was worry. very kind to me in the early days. Yes, he's, he's a lovely guy. We're about to enter an era where home robots are part of our daily lives. And I just met one of those robots. Her name is Curry. That's spelled K-U-R-I. Curry is a home robot companion, and I had a chance to meet the team that made her down in Silicon Valley. Curry is an adorable little robot that bleeps and runs around and makes you feel good about yourself, kind of. It's a really lovely little thing. It feels a little bit like R2-D2 if you mixed it with a teddy bear. Curry is not just a robot. She'll be an interactive member of your household. She moves around on her own and knows how to avoid obstacles and stairs. She communicates through expressive eyes and head gestures. She'll greet you when you get home. And she understands when you talk to her and responds back in her own language of chirps. When you're not home, Curry can be your eyes and ears like a house sitter. Right from your phone, you can see what's happening. She will check on your kids or your pets or anyone you want to stalk. And if Curry hears a loud noise, she'll go to investigate. Curry is available for pre-order right now at heycurry.com. That's H-E-Y-K-U-R-I dot com. Go to heycurry.com today. I'd also like to tell you about Code Media, an exclusive two-day event that's coming up in February. I'm here with Recode's senior mediator, Peter Kafka. Hey, Peter. Hey, I'm going to give myself my own credit. I'm also the host of the Recode Media podcast. Oh, is that a podcast like Recode Decode? <laughs> it's kind of like that, but but one that I host. So Code Media is February 13th and 14th at the Ritz-Carlton in Dana Point, California. Peter, tell us a little bit about the event. Who are we going to talk to? We are going to find people from old media, new media, and technology, people who are stringing all this stuff together. It's the kind of stuff we talk about on my podcast <laughs> and yours each week. So we're going to have Ashley McCollum, who runs Tasty at BuzzFeed. This Ooh, is I the like thing Tasty. that's actually powering Tasty. These are all those crazy uh, recipes you see that happen in 30, actually 40 seconds. Yeah, that's they're the, great. That's their rule. And she's going to come on stage with Marcus Samuelson. If you've ever watched TV and you've ever watched a food show, he's on it. He's a celebrity chef out of New York, very cool guy. And they're going to talk about what it's like to be a celebrity chef, what it's like to run BuzzFeed and Tasty. It should be a pretty interesting conversation. Are they going to feed us? I don't want to promise something that I can't deliver, but that's our hope. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope to see you some... You will get fed regardless. <laughs> Well, I hope to see some of our listeners there, too. Code Media is February 13th and 14th in Dana Point, California. For all the details and to get your ticket, visit recode.net slash events. We're here with Tim Ferriss, who is a... Are you a phenomenon? I'm not sure. I wouldn't call myself that. Well, kind of. You're not... 14 minutes into my 15 yeah. minutes, I think. Yeah. No, well, you're doing pretty well. But you sort of rocketed to fame with this book, The 4-Hour Workweek. It uh, was very unexpected. No yeah. one expected it to, yeah. to do anything. It had an initial print run of 12,000 copies. People couldn't even find it nationally. Right. And yeah. then? And then it hit the New York Times. And I remember when my editor, Heather Jackson at the time, called me. It was on a Wednesday. I expected it to come later. I didn't know that mm-hmm. you found out on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I had just done one of these uh, horrible radio satellite tours yeah, yeah, yeah. where Love I sat down and did a million in a row drinking pots and pots of coffee. And she said, hi there, Mr. New York Times bestselling author. And my first response was, Heather, don't fuck with me right now. I'm too <laughs> tired. And she said, no, you hit the list. You're on the extended list. Wow. Which so is it wasn't, like 25? It, no, I think it was top 15 mm-hmm. for the advice how-to miscellaneous category. Mm-hmm. And Everything changed from there. I remember leaning against the wall and just sliding down and sitting there. And why? Because because people were getting their cues from that. Well, I was. I didn't expect it to do that. Mm-hmm. I basically wrote the book for a handful of friends of mine 
who were really suffering with a lot of the problems that I had at the time, feeling trapped in their own companies or their own jobs. Whatever. Overwhelmed. Yeah. And uh, it stayed on the list, I want to say, I might be getting this slightly off, but four and a half years. Mm-hmm. And uh, that certainly changed a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was right, There was a book many years ago called The Road Less Traveled or one of them that just stayed on there forever. It was yeah. really, and it was, it was a, again, the how-tos or, or self-help. Or, they, they, some of these books stick for a long time. Yeah, or the cheese one, Who Moved My Cheese. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. Some of, these, some of these stay Do on Do you put forever. yourself in that jar? The You know, even Maria Kondo right now with sure. cleaning up your life. Oh, it's that a one's similar, been on for years. Yeah, yeah, but it's the idea of that you can better or make more efficient your life. And so you moved on to the workout because you're obviously interested in that. Yeah, I think I think that the, the physical vehicle is is important, even if you're trying to optimize cognitive performance and so on. I think this uh, sort of meat cube that we inhabit is important to right. to to care for. So the four hour, the four hour body. I didn't want to be the four hour work week guy. I mean, I, I probably right. will be anyway, but yeah, I didn't want to be. I didn't want to do the three-hour work week, the mm-hmm. two-hour work week, <laughs> and then have just... Don't I, fucking work anymore. I, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd run out, but you know, you run out pretty quickly of hours. But I thought very carefully about the second book, and I didn't want to take the easiest path, which would have been some derivative of the four-hour work week. I mm-hmm. didn't want to talk about email management for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I'd rather jump out a window, mm-hmm. put my hands behind my back. But the four-hour body was an experiment because I knew I could always go back to the four hour work week stuff, mm-hmm. even if the four hour body bombed, mm-hmm. but I would have, I would not have forgiven myself had I not tried a left turn. So I did the four hour body and that has actually done better yeah. than the four hour really work week. Really interesting tips in there. Yeah. That one, that one produces the, the, the ice bath, right? Oh, the ice baths. And I mean the, the visceral response that I get it, in terms of reward from people who show me say, this is my photo a year ago, right. and now I'm 120 pounds lighter. This mm-hmm. type of stuff is extremely gratifying to me. So that, that, I'm very proud of that book. And a lot of this has moved online. I was just talking to someone. I can't remember the name of uh, – I can't blanking on the name of it. It's another one where they're, they're trying to give you a whole program of your whole life. Yeah, and the, the, the advice how-to, though, you mentioned this uh, a, a moment ago – the category, I think, is maligned for a, a lot of good reasons. There's a bunch of schlocky right. shit in there. Uh, not sorry, Long Island That's cursing. Right. It's okay. Uh, the the type of how to and self improvement that I would tr- hope to emulate is closer to a Benjamin Franklin or mm-hmm. a Charlie Munger. And I think on some level, also, all mm. books are self help at the end of the day. Sure. If you're reading a novel because it helps you to escape and decompress from your stress, right. that is self help. Right. Uh, and if you're trying to educate yourself with a business book, nonfiction, then that would also be self-help. But there, there's a lot of, of cheesy stuff there out is. there. I try to make sure the substance to fluff ratio. Right, right, <laughs> is, which you can't. Is dense. So, so you've moved with this new book, and then you did Chef, and then was there another four? No, no, no. no was that, just okay. four-hour work week, chef. body, Chef, oh. and then this. the latest. So what was the impetus behind this, this Titans book? Yeah, the impetus behind Tools of Titans was uh, never to make it a book. It was to create a Cliff Notes version of my favorite takeaways from all of my podcast guests and all the people you've met. That's right. right. And I was actually getting quite anxious over a period of months because I would batch record some of my podcasts. I would mm-hmm. do say four or five in a week and then schedule them out. But that density of recording didn't allow me to in real time absorb very much. Right. And I wanted to go back and do experiments, 
with all sorts of stuff. Right. And uh, so I took a month. My parents, well, my dad hadn't been to, he's a huge Francophile, mm-hmm. hadn't, hadn't been back to France since 1962, I want to say. My mom had never been. And so I took them to France and spent a month just drinking lots of coffee, putting this together for myself uh, in, uh, well, for those people interested in a program called Scrivener that I like a lot, Evernote and Scrivener. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kept growing and growing and growing. And eventually I was like, who am I kidding? This so you've gotten all these tips from all the different people you've interviewed. Right. Is it tips or what? just would, how they live their lives? They're, they're tips. They're also largely routines, habits, what they do in the right. first 60 mornings of the uh, 60 minutes of the day, what they do to wind down. Uh, if they have any particular, say, internal monologue or dialogue or, or right. type of self-talk before they do certain things. Like yeah. Sean White, okay, right before you're going to go down if you're for, in the Olympics in the gold medal defining run mm-hmm. on a snowboard, what are you saying to yourself in your head right before you're leaving right. the gate? Those those types of, I would say, frameworks and philosophies, beliefs, and also tips. Like, hey, I use an aromatherapy diffuser with right, right. geranium I, when I'm, I'm composing music. You know, whenever we ask these questions on the show, it gets a lot of a response. People do want guidance. I don't know how else to explain it. They really do like hearing, especially yeah. about mistakes people make. Definitely. Things they've regretted, things they've – I'm not saying learning moments because I can't stand that concept. But things that help them overcome something and I think it's super helpful for people and people don't share that nearly enough yeah yeah I I I agree and uh it's it's if if you try to write a book that is prescriptive as mine are I mean you have to be very careful about a confusing correlation and causation and at least point out that hey maybe the fact that these people do x doesn't mean that x right so there's not commonality i do want to talk about commonality of these people so and you have a lot of tech people in the book you have a ton 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 and what is it about them that inspires you because you hang around everyone all these tech guys. It's all guys. I'm sorry to tell you. It's all tech they're dudes. Not, not all tech but, uh, guys. But no, but I'm not all, all tech, but I'm saying they yeah. love, they really like. Yeah, I mean, Mike, it's, I'm a guy and mm-hmm. I'm a writer mm-hmm. and I'd say 84, 85 The way business guys like Michael Lewis, it's a similar kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I certainly aspire. I, God, I wish I could write like Michael yeah, Lewis. Yeah, all of us. <laughs> His new book is great. Ah, uh, yeah, I haven't read the newest. Yeah. Uh, I was a I was a test subject of Daniel Kahneman's back. In oh, Princeton. you're kidding! I sat wow. in front of a, of a computer and hit a space bar for hours, and I'm trying <laughs> to make five dollars an hour. Yeah, but that's just, that's another story. The tech world, part of what appeals to me, is not tech and in the abstract, but the fact that I've I've known more than a handful of people now who I've watched go rise from the ashes of a company that was a disappointment or that didn't succeed the way they hoped it would to becoming billionaires. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been able to watch the the progression and the mistakes along the way. And I feel like that's a story worth telling. Well, talk uh, about a few of the stories. What do you Give me some things that you think were particularly interesting. Well, for instance, uh, Chris Saka. I've spent a lot of time with Chris. And from the very, very get-go... Chris Saka, let me just explain, is an investor. That's right. And yep. he used to work for Google. Right. And he's been involved in Twitter and a whole bunch of other things. And, and as, a, as a, someone who's poked at Twitter, too, as an investor. For sure. And uh, he's, he's certainly had his fair share of people calling him mercurial. That's a good adjective. <laughs> yeah, there's other words. I love <laughs> There's Chris. other words. But Chris is great. And uh, I met him through Kevin Rose at a barbecue. And he was so curious and 
generous with his time from the very outset in terms of teaching me about angel investing and how he was approaching things. Also was the one, I didn't learn to swim until I was in my 30s, and wow. I have him to, th to thank for it. He wow. introduced me to a swimming method called total immersion. Mm -hmm. I was always terrified of water. But uh, Chris, for instance, at one point, and there are many examples of this, but or I should say many different lessons from his journey. He moved to Truckee yeah. from San Francisco, and the the mental model was going on offense as opposed to staying on defense because he found himself going to these endless coffee meetings mm -hmm. and playing the same game that every other investor in Silicon Valley was trying to play. Uh, and he flipped it on its head and realized, okay, a lot of these people like to ski. A lot of these people like to go to Tahoe or areas like it. And he, he took a very, almost the, the inverse approach than most people. And the result of that, in part, is lowercase one, which is probably going to be the most successful venture capital mm -hmm. fund of all time. So he moved away, he got yeah. out of the, the scene. Got out of the echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And there are, if, if he's viewing the inbox as everyone else's agenda for your time mm -hmm. and thinking about how to more proactively organize his life and his family's lives for that matter, uh, I find that worth digging into. Right. Uh, if you look at, for instance, Uber, Mm -hmm. uh, Garrett Camp, one of my favorite people. I yeah. think he's a he great. He's one of the guy. original creators of Uber. Really. Yeah, 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 definitely co-founder. And I first became an advisor to Stumble Upon back in the day. Ah, yes, that was his first company oh, yeah. he sold and then bought back, or and bought back. Yeah, so quite a journey with Stumble Upon, and the journey's not over with Stumble Upon. No. But the case of Uber was one of scratching his own itch, mm -hmm. and I know that's maybe an overused line, but it's worth underscoring because. I remember we were in the mission at one point and I think we were at the Phoenix. I think it's still around on Valencia, this bar. We're having some drinks and talking about, among other things, how much of a pain in the ass it was in certain places at certain times to get a taxi in New York City and mm -hmm. how Luxor would promise to pick you up for the airport and then they wouldn't show up. I was living kind of uh, in, the, in the sticks and lo and behold, you know, a few weeks later, he's like, oh, I have this idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I recall seeing this screenshot, this early mock-up of Uber, and the streets were in Amsterdam. And I was like, Amsterdam? Wow, that would be amazing if it got to that point. And, and right. Uber was, it was uh, when it first launched as Uber Cab, was kind of scoffed at by... Yeah, not, it was luxury. Okay, not, yeah, there, was not, a, there was a little motto they had. I don't remember, I don't remember the motto, but it was, it, was, it was definitely viewed as something for the one percenters. Right. Uh, or be like the one person for a minute. Yeah, and and the I think what a lot of folks missed with that and uh, is that many things start with the one percenters. Yep. Re recycling. I just included. said something where it's exactly what's happening. Yeah, uh, and then it it can once you've proven the test case there, it can bleed out. So there are a lot of lessons there as well. Um, so those those would be a few that come mm -hmm. to mind. But these are I think in many cases you have principles or recipes that you can at the very least experiment with and in some cases replicate. So if you have, say, for instance, another one of my favorite people who's not in tech, but uh, Maria Popova, mm -hmm. uh, brain pickings, who's just a machine. I don't know how she does what she does. Her, her writing in English as her second language or third maybe is, is better than mine, which and, and a lot of people. But in any case, uh, she listens to the same, she's a very driven type A personality. And she listens to the same guided meditation every morning. And as far as commonalities, about I'd say eighty percent mm -hmm. plus of the people in the book have some type of mindfulness practice. Uh -huh. She listens to the Tara Brock 
summer 2010 smile meditation, which is available for free. People uh-huh. can find it every morning. And she credits Tara with changing her life. Okay. Well, that is plug well, and play. Why? Why? What's her explanation? Her, her explanation, if you listen to the meditation, it, it gives you an idea, but the, it's being comfortable with yourself. And I, if I, I don't want to speak for Maria, but speaking for myself also having listened to this and having tried to embrace being less of a, a spaz attack through meditation, it makes you less emotionally reactive. Yeah. So you are able to make better decisions and you're going to create fewer messes with impulsive, say, anger or frustration than you would otherwise. And for a lot of driven people, they they cut both ways. And sometimes right. they hurt people or themselves when they don't mean to. And I found meditation, becoming more aware of your state, allows you to intervene before you spin out. Right. Mindfulness is a really interesting thing with a lot of people. It's not just that one. I want to talk about this in the next segment, but it's I want what's happening next to try to self-actualize because there's a lot of ayahuasca. There's all sure. kinds of different things people are trying oh, yeah. to get their life extension, all kinds of things like that. But when you t- when you have the commonalities of these people, are there commonalities or is everyone's just different? And no, they the, have different roads to success. There are a lot of commonalities. Not everyone. There aren't commonalities that run as a through line across 100 people. Right. Uh, I find that encouraging because I recall when I was first looking at the patterns, and I was like, oh, my God, the first 10 people I looked at all wake up at 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) I don't don't want to wake up at 4.30 in the morning. But then I found, then you find people like, uh, for instance, uh, Sam Harris, or Mm -hmm. he's a PhD in neuroscience, very good writer, or uh, BJ Novak. Mm -hmm. and uh, Comedian, and he also has an app. And an app, and a a fantastic writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has a spectacularly successful uh, kid's book. Mm -hmm. And he needs to kick around for a few hours, maybe around 11 o'clock before he's fully functional. Right, And so it's like, oh, thank God, okay. Right, right. So everybody has a different... (laughs) Yeah, but there are, uh, for instance, absurd questions is is a very common pattern. So whether it's the type of questions that people listening to to this podcast may have heard before, the Peter Thiel type. I mean, Mm -hmm. Peter Thiel was on the podcast, but... Questions like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but why can't you achieve your 10-year plan in the next six months? Mm-hmm. And asking these these very seemingly absurd questions so that if you're, say, journaling on a response, you can't use your preconceived assumptions and the frameworks that got you to where you are to answer a right. question like that. You have to provide then seemingly absurd answers. And going through that type of practice... Uh, or people will ask, for instance, if I had to write this book in the next week, they have a year to write a book. If I had to write it in the next week, how would I do it? Right. Uh, these have, for me, and this is borrowing from people I've interviewed, helped me with some of the most important decisions in the last two years. Like right. my, Why not? You're asking a why not or a thinking outside the box. That's the, a version of thinking outside absolutely. the box. Absolutely. Very, very right. often it's a why not. And that led to my... Uh, startup vacation, like mm-hmm. the, uh, which started a year and a half, two years ago. Mm-hmm. I found it, that world generating too much more stress than benefit in my mm-hmm. life, marginal gain. And uh, so I haven't, I haven't done any startups in a year and a half uh, or two years maybe. And that was the result of a journaling exercise after one of these. So uh, I'm like sick of this. I don't want to do this. <sighs> there are many reasons. Uh, I'll try to, to bullet a few. Number one was uh, I found that with the influx of capital and fair weather investors and entrepreneurs, that the signal to noise ratio is getting very difficult for me as an individual. I use my own money. I use my own time. 
and I don't have a firm, I don't have associates. So to, to be financially responsible, I felt like I had to either double down and do it somewhat full-time or full, full-time or stop. And there was doing it in the middle was going to be very dangerous. And second, I found related to that, I was stopping, for instance, I was cutting back on writing. I was cutting back on other creative activities that I, I find very rewarding just on a, I hesitate to use the word spiritual level, but it's, it's just very redeeming for me mm-hmm. to do that, A. And the point one of my friends made when I told him I was considering startup making creation. a fund, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I said, well, you know, I've been con- considering creating a fund and doing this, this, and this, which a lot of my friends recommended for attractive economics and other reasons. And he said, if you don't sign a check, there are going to be 20 people behind you who are going to sign that check to that startup. Right. You are completely replaceable. Right. Well, we're all replaceable, Tim. That's true. No, no, we are. But he said, this is someone who had been on a panel with me and had someone come up who, uh, long story short, his, this, this person in the crowd, this, this man, his wife had died, and he, was, he had almost committed suicide and then taken the one thing he felt he could control, which was his body, and lost more than 100 pounds. And he came up and he was crying at this event. And so Kamal, Kamal Ravikant was the one who I had this conversation with, and he said, you will not have that impact cutting $25,000 checks or whatever mm-hmm, you're doing. Mm-hmm. So don't stop writing. And th- those are a few of the reasons that right. I, I just decided. And, and I think it's for, whether it's for me or anyone I've, most of the people I've interviewed, they've learned where they can handle moderation or implement moderation and right. where they're just binary. Well, you know, and it's also, there's, an, there's a compulsion to do it. If everyone around is doing, there's envy. I, so I want to finish up this section, the idea of what, are the negative traits of people because there was a compulsion. It's just like using yeah. social media. It's oh, sure. the same thing. That's addict. That's an addiction, really. For but, sure. But sometimes you feel, and sometimes there's a lot of soulless movement. Definitely. Uh, I, so I would say that on a macro level, if we're just talking about the negatives of those traits in, say, Silicon Valley or tech, or anywhere, or anywhere, and I, and I choose a lot of my interview subjects to be better rounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do look for people who are, say, not fantastic CEOs, but then neglecting their kids and right. <laughs> and causing all sorts of problems at home. Uh, that the, the exclusive drive for achievement with neglect of appreciation and present tense gratitude, if we, mm-hmm. if we assume that, say, depression is being stuck in the past and anxiety is being stuck in the future, if you're constantly planning and driving towards goals, uh, you tend to have, at best, constant low-grade anxiety. Mm-hmm. On top of that, in what people perceive, if you choose to participate in what can be a zero-sum game in, say, startup world, uh, there is incredible FOMO, fear of missing out, yeah. that is toxic beyond belief. It's yeah. a real culture of cortisol. Yeah. And uh, that is can be, for many people, very It's taken over unhealthy. in a way that's really... Interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, which yeah. I think why people are moving to more meaningful startups, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. I think people are searching for more, and uh, which is why, in part, in Tools of Titans, it's, it's broken into the three sections, healthy, wealthy, and wise. I don't think I would have written the wise, say, in 2003. Right, because uh, who cares if you're wise? Who, who cares? But I've, right. I've come to believe more and more that, that some of that seemingly woo-woo, touchy-feely stuff is actually pretty damn important. <laughs> it can be. All right, when we get back, we're going to talk more with Tim Ferriss. We're going to find out where all of this is going and where we are headed and what helps us do better. 
This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the operating system for mobile marketing and analytics tools. Success as a content or commerce company these days requires you to have a great mobile experience, but the operational complexity is enormous. Legacy web solutions don't work for mobile, and native tools require lengthy integrations, which means a lot of overhead, risk, and complexity. That's why you need modern data infrastructure built for the mobile era, where APIs are becoming the primary storefront for brands. MParticle makes it simple to collect data once and integrate all the tools required to run your mobile business successfully at scale. To learn more, visit mparticle.com decode. This podcast is also brought to you by GoCD, the on-premise open-source continuous delivery server created by ThoughtWorks. With GoCD's comprehensive pipeline modeling, you can model complex workflows for multiple teams with ease. And GoCD's value stream map lets you track change from commit to deploy at a glance. GoCD's real power is in the visibility it provides over your end-to-end workflow, so you get complete control of and visibility into your deployments across multiple teams. Say goodbye to deployment panic and hello to consistent, predictable deliveries. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.io slash recode for a free download. Commercial support and enterprise add-ons, including disaster recovery, are available. We're here with Tim Ferriss, famous author of the four-hour work week, and now he has a new book called Tools of the Titans, and basically how people use what the good tools are to either get wealthy, get smarter, be better, kind of stuff like that. Do you ever feel like just stopping? Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Uh, you exhaust me a little bit, to be honest with you. <laughs> I exhaust myself yeah. sometimes. I do, and I realize that I am either on or I'm off. Mm-hmm. I don't have I don't have a third gear. I'm right. either in park or sixth gear. And I I for that reason find it very important. You know, we're talking in January of 2017 in January of each year to block out extended periods where I am off the grid, mm-hmm. where I'm off. Where do you go? Do you uh, want to tell us? Well, no, I can tell you. I spent um about a year ago, uh, a month in just outside of Bali in mm-hmm. Indonesia. Nice. For part of the time living on a farm and studying Bahasa Indonesian. That's it. And I had no no phone, did not use a computer, no calendar. <laughs> Everything was in my head. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was glorious. It was yeah. fantastic. And I came back to whatever my projects were, 10 times more invigorated and effective had I, than had I not done that. Uh, this year, I'll be uh, scheduling out a lot of time in nature. So I have, I think it's an 18-day trip in the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. I'll be doing that. Um, and I've become very fascinated by fasting, among other things. Yeah. All, uh, what's with that, the fasting thing? <laughs> well, it's... Um, you can discuss ayahuasca later, but fasting sure. and ayahuasca, that's all I hear when I go out to yeah, lunch with tech yeah. guys well, anymore. Well, the, They're like, Carrie, you want to do ayahuasca? I'm never with you. <laughs> Perhaps if you, yeah, if then if definitely don't do it with them. If, if, no, if oh, that's trust the feeling. me, it's not happening. Uh, the which are oddly enough, the, the two longest chapters in the book are about psychedelics mm-hmm. and fasting and ketosis. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about each of them. So, fasting for me has a few, there are a few benefits in responsible fasting and uh, preferably supervised fasting. The first is medical. So I, I've spent a lot of time with researchers like Dominic D'Agostino, other published scientific uh, authors, and more than a few believe that effectively after the age of, say, 40, we all have precancerous cells in our body, mm-hmm. or 70% of us, let's say. 
And those are not a problem in and of themselves unless they start to grow out of control. Right. And many cancers, not all, love glucose and uh, do not grow very well in the presence of ketones and the absence of glucose. So as a result, there are a few interventions, cancer being, say, one of the four causes with 80% certainty that'll kill you if you're alive past 40. Like it's not going to be some motorcycle Mm -hmm. racing accident at that point. If you couldn't say fast for, and the the length is, is debated, but for a three to seven day period, a few times a year, those could, those could serve as purge fasts that would trigger autophagy and other things that would help to prevent those precancerous cells from becoming problems. Uh, and, uh, there's a lot of auto repair that happens when you remove inputs and uh, certain types of, say, amino acids that really trigger something or activate something called mTOR. And <clears throat> so that's the that's the kind of highbrow scientific version. Then there's part of me that that I, I very strongly believe that voluntary suffering is underrated. <laughs> I agree. Because if you are if if you're solely if you have say two sides of the scale and one is hedonism and one is suffering and you're constantly piling on the hedonism uh you you adapt to that very quickly mm-hmm. and this hedonic treadmill which we see all the time in silicon valley right i mean i i've met people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars who are utterly miserable because mm-hmm. their frenemy from some other startup has a bigger jet i mean right. it's and, oh, it, no. and, and it's, it eats them it, it eats just them. it just yeah. kills them yeah uh and the way you counterbalance that is you dose yourself with voluntary suffering. And for me, fasting is one means by which to do that. Mm-hmm. So I'll be going shortly in the next couple of weeks into the desert in Nevada with a friend of mine who's qualified to do such things. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to walk out into the desert with a jacket in effect. And it can get really chilly, you mm-hmm. know, 15, 20 degrees and figure it out. We're just going to basically live in the desert. So it's not bear gorillas you're going with, right? No, 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 it's not, not bear, uh, but we're going to walk out, no food, mm-hmm just a little bit of water and just figure it out. Oh, and, and a he's gonna, more than a little water. Water's yeah. a good thing. I'm oh, water. pretty certain. Water is a good, water is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so these types of, whether it's cold exposure that you mentioned earlier, uh, another form of voluntary suffering mm-hmm. uh, or fasting, uh, that is a great way to improve your overall Mental. average set point of happiness and well-being. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. Do you think that the overuse, this is a very common question of the social media, I've been thinking about it a lot because it creates so much mania in a lot of ways. And it's seen in this election, not just fake news and stuff like that. I think that's, yeah. It's just one of the manifestations of it. But what do you imagine we've done with all this? You know, you walk down the street, you see everybody using phones. Right now, my new thing is I don't look at my phone ever when I'm walking because I like to look at things. and Except when I'm a map, perhaps, when I'm lost or something. But I do, when people are doing that on the street and they're looking down, I go, hey, like, <laughs> like to everybody, look up right now, stop it. And like, they go, they just don't know what to do. And it's great. It's really fun for me personally. It sounds like um, a great sport. It is. And it's so easy, you know, and especially in San Francisco and everywhere. It's not just San Francisco, but there is this element of us, you know, there's all these people in Silicon Valley want to do the singularity. We want to become our neural networks. We yeah. like replace all kinds of stuff. How do you look at that? How do you, cause that's sort of in this area. Yeah, I, th- I think that, I can't speak for everyone, but I will speak for, well, first I would observe, so all this debate about 
virtual reality, augmented reality? Mm -hmm. Are we, in fact, in a simulation ourselves? Yeah, that's right. You know, Elon, in my interview with him last year, oh, yeah. fucked with everybody oh, on yeah. that issue. Oh, yeah. They're like, it's, what? Wait it, a minute. That's that's a wild one to, to, <laughs> to think on. And I he, would argue the that... The guy from Zappos is into that, too. Tony Shea. Tony Shea, because we were doing an interview, and I said, as usual, you were insane. As ever. He's <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. We're in a simulation. I'm like, what? And then he went on and then sent me 90 articles. And I was like, well, what does it matter? And why do I look like this if it's a simulation? Anyway, it was very... Yeah, cool. I would say we're, we're, most of us are already in a virtual reality, walking down the street mm -hmm. looking at phones, mm -hmm. aware of nothing else around us. Right. But in my life, in my certainly in the last few years, I've noticed the more reactive I feel the more miserable I am mm -hmm. and the the worse I treat myself and the worse I treat other people. Mm -hmm. And social media is just jet fuel for reactivity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is designed to cause you to react. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that reason, uh, I, I regularly go on social media fasts, mm -hmm. <laughs> social media diets. And, and I don't use Facebook at all for personal purposes. Uh, Twitter I use primarily for news aggregation, just spotting, spotting patterns. And I've used, for instance, Nuzzle, mm -hmm. which I don't have any involvement with, uh, to aggregate the most shared articles of friends of mine. But even, even so, I, I unsubscribed from Nuzzle, which I love as a service, yesterday because even people who are usually very optimistic and providing or proposing solutions instead of bitching about problems are so negative right now. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of understandable reasons for it, but it's it's spun out of control and I, I, I find it contagious. So mm -hmm. I, I, as a sample size of one anyway, am, am making plans this year to dramatically cut back on personal reactivity. I might still, and I will still, I'm sure, publish and share via social media, mm -hmm. but in terms of engaging in any non-pre-planned way, not, Probably well, I think there's do a lot less. of anger out there on both, oh, all sides. So, on all so, sides. So angry. So, so And it's anger. easy to engage. And it, it's real anger. There's nothing wrong with real anger. It's re there's some really yeah. horrible things that are said. No, it's true. It's true. I think there's, I think there is, I think anger can be channeled in many ways, though. So you can, you can channel anger. Well, for instance, and let's, we could, we could take anger and translate it to aggression. I think that there's, and there's certainly a lot of variation within males, but men are generally hardwired for violence. I yes, think. I and understand I, that. I have two yeah, sons. Yeah, you get it. I get it. They're maniacs. Yeah. So in that, if, if we're operating from that assumption, I think that it is extremely, extremely important for both men and women, but, but for men in particular to have a physical outlet through which they can diffuse mm -hmm. some of that aggression mm -hmm. so that it doesn't manifest itself in really destructive ways. And so I think there's, there's constructive anger and aggression and then there is destructive, and uh, I, I find it demoralizing to see how high the percentage is on the destructive side. Right. So, so I'm 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 really taking a step back to tr to recalibrate a lot in my life. Well, what's interesting is that these medias also get you when you're talking about reactive, because I think it hasn't really been studied nearly enough at this point. Even though there's been lots of studies and looks, but in a really substantive way, that everyone feels like they can talk to you at any time. <laughs> texting. Texting is oh. the devil's work as far. Uh, I've yeah. decided, you know what I mean? Like it's a really, <laughs> especially in personal relationships, it's, yeah. it's, I won't text with several people because yeah. it just doesn't, it never ends well. Yeah. And so what it is, is if you have a feeling, you express it immediately. And now everyone expresses and shares immediately. 
There's not a thought that goes unsaid. There's yeah. not a thought that isn't unshared. And at one point, I was like, at some point, I want to be a hermit. Like, I don't react yeah. to anything. Like, I don't share. I don't tell you. But I can't remember the last time I read something where I just read it, and I just read it. Yeah. I had to say it. Like, oh, look, I just read this. because, And you want to, people to know about it because you've learned something. Right. But I had to resist myself. I saw the movie um, Arrival, which I liked quite oh, a bit. Arrival's fantastic. Tremendous. Just interesting content. Awesome. I love time yeah. stuff. So. so you should read the... Not to interrupt, I'll keep it short, but there's a collection of short stories by Ted Chang, C-H-I-A-N-G, that is phenomenal, and Arrival was based on one of his short stories. Wow, really? I will then. so good. I love all time travel stories. I'm fascinated by time. I'm waiting for someone, like, stop inventing fucking photo apps, get me time travel, like, immediately. (laughs) Stat. Um, So it was was really interesting, and I was thinking about, and I liked it, and I didn't tweet anything about it. I just didn't. I'm like, it's mine. Like, I want it for me. And it was, I'm talking about it right now, but it was... I didn't want to share anything. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't. And it was really better. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds dumb. Yeah. Um, now I limit myself to stupid things Trump says, which is enjoyable, <laughs> which is enjoyable for me. And I like it. Yeah. Arrival, uh, especially for anyone listening, if you're, if you're a language nerd mm-hmm. in any capacity, oh my right. God, it's so good. And everything. The whole, oh, the whole it's, it's, it's really good. It's a brilliant film. Yeah. And it's, you don't see it coming. No. Like, no. Abs- like right oh, minute yeah. before the end, you're like, oh, 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 oh my God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, the other one was uh, La La Land, which I liked quite a bit this year um, because it's about what could have been and, you know, the. It's fascinating. So let me finish up with you because I'm going to go on your show in a minute. What are your tools and tips right now? And then what are you doing next? I'll answer that in reverse order. So what I'm doing next, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I don't have five or 10 year plan. Uh, I have, I have certain values that I think are constant, but otherwise I treat my life as a series of six month experiments. And Mm -hmm. then I wait to see what doors will open because I can't predict them in advance. So right now I've worked really, really hard on Tools of Titans. I'm extremely happy with how it turned out and how it's done. And now I'm just biding my time. Right. So you're not doing a Tools of Titans workbook? No, no, Please no. don't. <laughs> I have no plans uh, for that. Although my, my fans are really bothering me about an audiobook. Work, mm-hmm. I'm working on it. So I'm not sure on next. In terms of my tools and tips right now, A, become more aware of your thoughts so you're not controlled by your thoughts all the time. Mm-hmm. And there are, many, there are many different ways to do that, but I would encourage everyone to consider some type of very easy mindfulness practice. And that could be, that could take the form of exercise where you count cadence or repetitions. It's just you time where you are not thinking about the, Anything. the future. It's present tense. Mm-hmm. It could be a sport or playing tennis. It does not matter. Yeah. Gets you out of something. Exactly. I did, the other day I did acro yoga. I don't know oh, why. I didn't acro. know what it was. So, I didn't know what it was and I just showed up and oh, I was absolutely happy okay. for an hour. So acro yoga is, has been one of my obsessions for mm-hmm. the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. Love acro yoga. I don't know why. I didn't know what it was and oh I didn't even want, I didn't look, I didn't Google it on purpose. I was yeah. like, I'm not oh, Googling it. That's I'm good. not going to know. I'm going to show up this fucking yeah. class. It was the only awesome. one at the time I wanted to go. And I, it was an hour of pure joy. I it's was just like, bliss. it was great. And then I lifted this huge dude with my legs, which it, I never, I'm like, no way I'm lifting that huge yeah. dude with my legs. And, and it then was you, really. Then you L based him and you're rocking. Yeah. Yeah. Short time, but it, it was fascinating. It's, it's so, so acro yoga, this is tricky territory to get into. But since you brought up acro yoga, I think that analog, nature and green, figure out what your nature triggers are that improve your state, whether that's some, for some people, some people it's mountains, for some people it's water, spend more time in these environments, more physical contact. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that was what was great about it. I thought it was going to be weird and awkward, but it wasn't. It's it's a very playful, in some ways sensual, but not sexual contact in the case of Acroyoga, in the case of, say, dance, very similar. I really think, and if you read books, say, like Chimpanzee Politics, or you look at zoology, if you look at our close relatives, there is a lot of physical contact. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not recommending you just run out and start grabbing everybody, obviously, but finding a way to incorporate more physical touch maybe it's just hugging more right. i think is in extremely therapeutic well, it was, it was yeah. i really thought it was gonna be awkward and it really wasn't yeah. it was yeah. fat and, and i'm not one like that yeah, i was yeah. sort of fascinated because i was like oh no i don't want to touch that dude and i was like <laughs> fine and by the end it was really lovely it's very playful so mm-hmm. for me this year I, I i can give you specifics but i'll give you the the high level high level is for this year i think to have breakthroughs in my life both on the appreciation, enjoyment, or I should say on the appreciation, enjoyment and achievement columns. I want more beauty. I'm I'm striving to create or be involved with more beauty, absurdity and play. Those are Mm -hmm. the, those are the three that I'm paying a lot of attention to. And what do you think people should abandon? What is the tip that you would, or a tool? I would say wake up early enough that, or Format your life, structure your life in such a way that you do not check, that your phone is on airplane mode and you do not check email or text messages for at least the first 60 minutes of each day. Mm -hmm. That is a very good tip. I set my phone on airplane mode and until I'm done with my meditation and a handful of other things, I have my morning routine with types of journaling and tea and so on. doesn't have to take a long time, but I have at least a boot up process where I can mm-hmm. clarify my intentions for the day, the things I'm going to do, not do before I start dodging bullets that come at right. me in right. the form of yeah. SMS or email. Yeah. Cause you think it's necessary. I'll have to kill Peter Kafka if that's the case, but I don't <laughs> mind doing that in any way. Literally morning, tung, 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 text, text, text. Cause he's up in the morning and literally I'm like, Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, and that, then you don't really have to get to it. Yeah. That would be one. And then I'll, I'll give one last sort of quote to ponder. And this is from a local here. I have just tremendous respect for the more I get to know him and the more I learn about him, the more impressed I am. BJ Miller. So mm-hmm. BJ Miller, who was the, I suppose he was the managing director or executive director of the Zen hospice project here in San Francisco has helped more than a thousand people to die. He is a triple amputee from an electrocution accident in college oh a few years before me at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And when I asked him, the question, if you could put any message on a huge billboard mm-hmm. to convey to millions of people, what would it be? And his answer was, don't believe everything that you think. Uh, and yeah. I think that is a good mantra for 2017. Yeah, that's a really good way. I have a similar one that's, um, believe what you see, don't see what you believe. Oh, I like that. It's a similar one. Yeah, that's People really good. see what they believe, not believe what they... Anyway, the opposite. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good one. That's a great one. Thank you, Tim, so much. This has been super fun. Thank you. Um, I urge everyone to read Tools of Titans. Many tech people are in there, but there's all kinds of different stories and, and not just tips, but just like things that work out. And they, they, there wasn't a whole lot of commonality. It's just here's what worked for me. There here's are, what I do. Yeah, there's certain patterns, and then there are weird, beautiful idiosyncrasies because right. we're, we're all weirdos. Right. So ultimately, I think to... ultimately what I pulled away from it was just be genuine to yourself, which I think is, I think, Definitely. hard for a lot of people. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews I've done with Mr. Robot creator Sam Ismail, TaskRabbit CEO Stacey Brown-Philpot, and investor Aileen Lee, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. 
Now that you're done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts? Recode Media with Peter Kafka comes out every Thursday. On Fridays, I host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, which distributes this show. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services gets what it takes to build what's never been built before because that's what Amazon Web Services is doing every day. Amazon Web Services is a leading cloud provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. Amazon Web Services was the first to introduce cloud computing over 10 years ago. That helps everyone from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises build their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what builders want, Amazon Web Services is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on building a business over building an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws to learn about how Amazon Web Services can help you build a better future today. Let the builders build. That's podcast.aws.